Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. We thank you that uh, your faithfulness abounds. Uh, and as we uh, just as we're finishing this this holiday season, and we're thinking about the many many blessings that your your Son Christ has has given us, may we spend time this morning in your Word. Uh, worshiping you and thinking deeper thoughts about you and and drawing nearer to you and just would ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so if you have a Bible, please join me in Psalm 25. Psalm 25. I decided to to pull out of the end of Judges and and do something maybe a little a little more uh Maybe a little easier. <laughs> Psalm 25? Psalm 25, yes. Psalm 25. One of, one of my favorites. So as we, as we look at it this morning, we will, uh, what I'd like to do is, is walk through, we'll just walk through it uh, a few verses at a time. One thing that... Um, that the, the text does that we, we don't see in English that we would see if we were, were Hebrew writer readers um, and maybe your Bible has a note of it like my Bible has a note. Um, this psalm is an acrostic poem. Each verse begins with the next successive letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So a lot of, lot of reasons stuff like that gets done in Hebrew poetry. A couple theories. Um, would be, uh, it's easier to memorize, right? So much of, of the Psalms would have been memorized versus having a, a written, written Bible in front of them. That, that could be a reason. We ultimately, the author doesn't tell it, David doesn't tell us why he uses an acrostic. Does anybody know any other uh, famous Psalms that, that are deep with Hebrew acrostics? And, and uh, there, really, there really are two other places where this, this kind of idea comes up in the, in the Old Testament. One's a Psalm and one's a book. Somebody have any guesses? It's just a trivia thing. It's not super important. But. 119. Correct. Psalm 119 is the most robust Hebrew acrostic in the Bible. Every eight verses, every stanza starts. So you'll, you'll notice above the, the psalm it says a word. Those words are the names of the different Hebrew letters. And actually, of, of each, those eight verses, they all go in eight verse increments. And each verse starts with that letter. So it's very structured and organized. Uh, most people think the argument there is um, because the Bible is is all-encompassing, we then have the all-encompassing uh, alphabet to show that it is everything from beginning to end. The other one is the book of Lamentations, uh, one that isn't often read. Uh, we know Lamentations 3, you know, your mercies are new every morning. We know that verse, but the whole, whole book of Lamentations is one long acrostic. So... There's, there's your little, if, if, it ever, if you ever land on Jeopardy and you have Bible trivia, there's a couple ones there for the win. So maybe get you a couple bucks here and there, we'll see. So anyway, so this one is, is like that. And like I said, it's not um, maybe necessarily super uh, applicable to the application of the text, but it's at least something to be, be made aware of. So with that being said, would someone be so kind as to uh, read the first three verses of Psalm 25, please? Do not let me be put to shame, nor let, nor let my enemies try 
You're doing fine. No one, no one who is confident in you will ever be put to shame, but they will be put to shame who are treacherous without excuse. Thank you. What does David mean by the word shame in this context? Okay, uh, expand on that. What do you mean by that? Um, what they plan to do uh, will not come true. Come true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. Good. I, I, I agree. And then, so I think that that's, so in verse 3, he goes on to say, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. What do we think? So I, I agree. I think in verse 2, he's saying, don't let me be foiled by my enemies. What does he mean about uh, none who wait for you, meaning the Lord, shall be put to shame? Is that shame different than the shame that we're talking about in verse 2? Yeah, maybe. Um, so let me read you a quote that I found helpful about the idea of, of shame in regards to not, not being put to shame those who wait on the Lord. So the idea would be being let down or disappointed or having trusted in something that, end, that in the end proved unworthy of our trust. And so what David is saying is, let me not be put to shame because that would put your name at risk. So prove or show that I... Um, I have no need to be put to shame because I put my trust in the right person, in, in the Lord. So it's this idea of, of let me not be put to shame. Let me not be lessened because I, uh, the way I would say it is, I backed the wrong horse, right? which is not what. And that, so he's, he's calling on God to be faithful. Um, what does, so my version says, okay, so at the end of verse 3, they shall be ashamed, and mine says, who are wantonly treacherous. And I would imagine everybody's got a different, depending on whatever version of Bible you're reading, has, it probably does something differently with the idea of wantonly treacherous. But what is the idea of this, this treachery that is being described by David in verse 3? idea of, of wantonly could be defined as like unprovoked. So like unprovoked dangerousness. Pretty good. Good. So I should have said this. So the structure of, of this psalm roughly is the first seven verses are petitions or, or prayers or requests made to God. And then verses 8 through 15 will be uh, David remembering the promises of God with one lone 
petition in the middle of it. And then 16 through 21 are some additional additional prayers. So I should have said that. That might help. So um, going on, let's look at verses 4. Would someone please read verses 4 and 5, please? Thank you very much. So looking at the language of what David is saying, what is God's role in our learning? Teaching? Yeah. So, so the Lord teaches us. Like verse 4, so make me to know your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. Teach me. So um, so in, oftentimes in Psalms, things that are said uh, in a way that are, are direct like this, they're, they're, not, they're not so much commands. Like if we were to read that, we might say that, that David is commanding God to do this. It's not that forceful. It's a, it's a direct way of making a petition to the Lord. We see it in, in, in many, many of the Psalms. So it's this idea of, of he, is, he is asking God directly for something that he believes God has promised to do for him. And if that's the case, what, what is the role of... So, so how, how, does this, how does this come together? How, how, how does God teach us, and how do we also seek to learn from him? What is it that, that he's asking here? He's, he's obviously not asking God to zap him with wisdom, or, 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 you know, he, but he's, he's asking God to teach him. So what would be the way David is thinking that might be accomplished? Yes, agreed. So the Lord teaches us, the Lord guides us, um, but that doesn't abdicate our responsibility to grow. And that's, I mean, that's kind of a mystery of the Christian faith, isn't it? God gives us these commands. God promises to teach us and lead us, and, but he also commands us to do, to do things like walking walk, and keeping and delighting in, in these things. That's good. Why is so... Is there a connection, or, or how would you make the connection between... So David 
starts this psalm obviously in some sort of turmoil, right? He, he's concerned. He said, let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Um, I'm waiting on you knowing that, that you will not allow me to be put to shame. Um, so, so what is the, why did, why, or what is the connection between David being in concern and then going towards God, teach me to know your ways? What's the connection there? comes to living a holy life, does God more often give us ideal circumstances or give us the wisdom to walk through what we're dealing with? You all know. I mean, you don't want to say it, but we all know. I mean, we know, like, we would love to learn the first way, right? Just give me ideal circumstances and I will sing your praises all the day long. But God knows the crucible of our faith is found in difficult things, right? And, and I think, and so I didn't realize as our conversation was going here how much Psalm 25 and what we're saying this morning is going to kind of bleed into the message this morning. But, but this idea of we need to know what, what God has said, right? We, like we need him to teach us how to have proper responses to the things around us. And if we don't know God, we don't know um, what we're looking at. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Verse four says, "Show me your ways, mm-hmm. O Lord." Mm-hmm. So uh, I would say it's like, "Lead me by example. Mm-hmm. Show, give me an example somewhere that I can learn mm-hmm. your ways." Mm-hmm. There's, a couple, there's places that could come, right? That could be seeing other fellow believers, right? Or it could even right. be the scriptures. The scriptures right. could could walk us through those things as well. Good. Yeah, there's so many times. Uh, Something doesn't dawn on you until you see somebody else practice it. It's like, oh, yeah, that makes so much sense. Like, do they think of that? Yeah. It's like, and now I got something to aspire to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's good. Notice at the at the end of verse five. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. So he, he, he says, let me know your ways, teach me your paths, lead me and guide me. Why? Well, because you are the God of my salvation and you're the, God, you're the one that I'm, I'm waiting on. I mean, he's essentially saying, there's nowhere else I can go, right? There, there's no other place I can go for what I need in this circumstance, which is a pretty bold thing for a king to say, right? I mean, we shouldn't forget that David as far as Israel is concerned, had the utmost power. He had everything at his disposal that he might need. Um, and yet, when his enemies were, were circling the gates, when, when shame and, and concern were, were on the horizon, he wasn't calling for more chariots and more, more strength. He was saying, you're the God of my salvation. You're the one that I will wait for all day, no matter how long it takes. Because if, if you don't show up, 
nothing that I do matters, which is just a, a picture of faith that is so helpful. Um, I, I just think, I think it's so easy to read these things and maybe not really remember what, who's writing it and, and what was even at their disposal. I think the same thing when I read anything that Solomon wrote, right? When you read Ecclesiastes, you're like, okay, of all the people in the world that could have said, uh, hey, uh, I've, I've been down every road as far as making money and success is concerned, and I will need, I can tell you it's all a dead end. He was like the best guy to walk the face of the earth to, to be able to make those claims, right? Because his, his money and his wisdom and his power were pretty, pretty legendary. And in the same way, David had many things at his disposal, and yet what he's waiting for is for the Lord. Next, verses 6 and 7, the last kind of, uh, kind of petitions, the, the requests that he's going to make before he kind of switches gears in verse 8. Would someone please read verses 6 and 7, please? Thank you. God doesn't forget anything. So why do you think David is using this language of asking God to remember, well, first, remembering God's mercy, his mercy and his steadfast love that are apparently unchanging because they've been from old, which that word can also mean like from eternity, right? So it's this idea of you've always been merciful and steadfast. So why is he asking him to remember? Why is he asking him to remember that? I saw this same kind of thing last summer when I was going through a number of prayers in the Old Testament um, by various people. They almost seem like they're reminding God of his, some of his character, but they're really reminding themselves of mm. his character. So they start their prayer by reminding themselves of who God is and what he's done many times in a specific situation that is relevant to their current situation. And then they uh, present their petition. Yes. So what is the, what, what would be, or, or how, how could we, or, or how should we incorporate this kind of language into our own prayers? Does it honor God to remind him of his attributes? I'm thinking of the Lord's Prayer at this point. What's the first thing that Jesus says when he says to teach his disciples how to pray? Our Father who art in heaven. And that was another exa mm -hmm. example of What's the next line? pulling these things from that I saw in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Jesus modeled that too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How what does it mean to hallowed be thy name? What does that mean? We say, I mean, if you grew up 
in a church like I grew up in, like you say it every week, but what does it mean? What does hallowed be your name mean? Hold it forever. Yes. Your name is holy. You are the holy God. God doesn't need to be reminded that he's holy. He knows that he is it, right? So there's some value to us, to Gary's point, there's some value to us to talk to God, reminding him of his characteristics because it's ultimately reminding us of God's characteristics. I would say that here in this case in 6 and 7, David is, is not reminding God of God's mercy. David is reminding David of God's mercy and, and reminding God that, God, you are the God that is merciful and you have steadfast love and you've been this way forever. So he's reminding himself and also he's reminding God, God, you've made promises here. Like you, you've said you're a certain way. And because I know that I won't be put to shame, I can trust you. God can bear the weight of being reminded of his character. It honors him because he is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Well, and to go back to two and three, mm -hmm. it reminds us of the God that we put our trust in mm -hmm. and the fact that those who trust in him will not be put to shame. Mm -hmm. it, situation, what better way to face it than to focus on the one who's in control of that situation rather than to focus on our troubles. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. he, like, like you said about David, ultimately the outcome is dependent on God showing up, mm -hmm. not on whatever we decide that we want to do. Right. Right. I, I can also say, like, experientially, um, Whenever my prayer life feels dry and I think about what I'm doing when I'm praying, I'm jumping first and primarily only to the things that I need from God. God, I really want, please work this work thing out. Please work this kid thing out. Please work it. When I'm asking and asking and asking, but I find that if I, one of two things that helps me in my prayer life is either I, I pray through a psalm and try to structure it based on a psalm, or if I start just by simply picking a characteristic of God and, and just saying, Lord, you are holy. God, your name is holy and it is great and it is worthy to be praised. You are the God who stands apart from all other gods. You are worthy of every time that I come before you and I praise you and I thank you that I can come before you. Lord, this work thing has been different. I mean, I've found that like that warms my heart, that draws me nearer to the Lord in the throne room of grace by, by taking that step. And I think that's biblical. I think that's why Jesus gave the structure he did in the in the, uh, the Lord's Prayer. I don't, I don't necessarily think it has to be a, a liturgical prayer we repeat verbatim every week. I think it's a great outline for some ways to, to pray that, that ultimately um, both honor God and meet our needs and, and all of that works, works together. And so I think this could be an instance in a psalm where David is, is doing that. He's reminding God of his characteristics because God is these things. God is merciful and has steadfast love. And so um, just maybe an extra two cents there for praying. If you ever feel like you're in a rut. Um, I, growing up, did you guys ever hear the, the ACTS prayer, A-C-T-S? You guys that? What's the first one? Adoration. So what, what, how do you adore the Lord, right? So whenever, whenever I did it with my mom growing up, shout out Leanne Wealthy, it was always you have to pick an attribute of God. Like that was what you did. Like pick the attribute. What's the attribute? Holiness. We did holiness last night. Pick a different one. There's, there's another one there. What, what else is there? Uh, he's merciful. Good one. 
Okay, he's forgiving. Good, right? There's all of these great attributes of God, and uh, and and it, it's helpful to start there, um, because I think again I'm rambling, so please someone jump in. But um, I think our time in the Word and our time in prayer not only should be functional, but they should also be worshipful. Like our, our morning time in the Word should be worship, and worshiping would be also stepping back and praising God for who He is. So even in our times of prayer, we should we should be worshiping. Yes, bring our petitions and our concerns, but let's start with, God, the only reason why I'm bringing you my petitions and, and concerns is because you are this way. You are this, this God who is holy and righteous and just and merciful and kind um, and cares about us. And verse 7, remembers not the sins of my youth. Man, what a, what a, what a great thing that is. Um, I, I almost printed it off. I really should have. I was reading a commentary on this this. this text, and there's this preacher with the last name Ironsides, which is just a solid name. I'm actually going to quote him in the sermon today. Um, I was on an Ironsides kick this week. I mean, that, that's the name you want. But he tells this story about how he was going to visit a member of his church who was on his deathbed. Right? He's laying in bed. He's, he's dying, right? And, and he goes there. And, and the man was a, a believer for 40 years, just this devout man dying. And, and, and Ironsides is by his bed and says, you know, my brother, what, what, is, what is wrong? You're about to enter eternity. And he's just, this, this man is just wretching. He's saying, he's saying, oh, pastor, I, I cannot but remember and remember all of the sins of my youth, all of the, the ways that I, I, I let God down and I, I sinned against my father. I, I can't not stop thinking about these things. And Ironside's turned to, to Psalm 25, verse 7. It said, the Bible, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. And he, he, he comforts this man who's dying. He's saying, don't forget ultimate reality. Don't remember the things that God has forgotten. And boy, we all have sins of our youth, right? We all have, there are a lot of things that we'd like to take back in our lives. And like a couple do-overs. I, I used to golf. I'd like some mulligans, right? I'd like a couple, couple do-overs. Missed a couple three-foot putts, right, in this life that I shouldn't have. And, and yet God is, is the God who does not remember the sins and the transgressions of our youth. Why? It's not because we're so good, right? It's because of his steadfast love and his goodness. So how comforting is it to know that our standing before the Lord is not about our track record, but again, it's about the character of the one who has saved us. Very comforting. Yeah, that's why the gospel is good news, right? Like, this is good news that we don't carry our sins any longer. It doesn't make them less grievous. It doesn't make them, it's something we, we brush under the rug, but it's, it's, it's more of a picture of how great is our God. Any other thoughts on that before we go on? Look at it makes me think last week Pastor was talking about vengeance in mm. Hebrews. Okay. And the fact that if a person wrongs you and they are a believer, that wrong is paid for by the blood of Christ. Mm -hmm. And if it's not, if themselves mm -hmm. and so 
know, to the point of that guy on his deathbed, and that's that's what uh, Ironsides was was trying to point it back to. Mm -hmm. is we need to dwell on the forgiveness, the mercy, the grace mm -hmm. of God in sending His Son to pay that debt. Amen. Amen. Well, let's look at, uh, so 8 through 15, um, David kind of pivots, and he, and he moves away from making petitions, but now he's going to really lean into the promises and truths about, about God. So would someone read verses 8, 9, and 10, please? Yes. Okay, so this is, I think, a really fascinating three verses in the Old Testament. So starting in verse 8, who is the good and upright Lord instructing? Sinners. Sinners, very good. Now, who are, and then he goes on to say, He's leading the humble in what is right, and he's teaching the humble to pray, and his paths are faithful and steadfast for those who keep his covenant. Here's my question for you. Is the, are the sinners, the humble, and the keepers of the covenant all the same people? Yeah. Yes, they are. They are. It's one of the clearest pictures in the Old Testament that, the God, that God saw... Um, those who kept the covenant were also sinners. This idea that, that God instructs the sinners. Sinners are people that are aware of their sin. What does that make them? Humble. What, 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 are the humbles, what, what happens to the humble people? They are led and they are taught. What do humble people do? They ultimately follow his covenant and his testimonies. And so what do they do? They say things like, God, remember not the sins of my youth. Forgive me because you are the Lord of my salvation. I think oftentimes when we read the Old Testament, we think, well, there's, when the Bible talks about sinners in the Old Testament and those who follow the covenant, those are mutually exclusive people. And I would, I would argue that in verse 8, 9, and 10, David is, is making a very clear case that, that the, the gospel, the good news, even in the Old Testament, is that sinners are humbled, and humble sinners are the ones that are teachable and taught, and those are the ones that follow and keep the covenant. Am I out to lunch on that? Like, do you read that different? Because I, I want to have a, a discussion about this, and I don't want to just, you guys to just buy what I'm saying, because I'm the one sitting behind the, the, swoopy, the swoopy desk today. That Ruth and I agree is swoopy. <laughs> Propping up all my stuff. Myself, I'm more bothered by my sins of the last 30 years since I've come to Christ mm. than my youth. Mm. My Right. Now I keep sinning when I know better. Yeah. Oh, amen, brother. Amen. But what I so and but I would also say is that not not to embarrass Ed or anything, but like is that also not the picture of Christian humility though? Dead dead sinners don't care about pleasing God, right? People with dead hearts don't care if what they did in their youth or today or in the last thirty years, they don't care. They don't care if it honors God, dishonors God. It just doesn't matter. 
they don't, they, it's not even on their radar. One of the sneaky greatest things that God has given us is gr being grieved against our sin. It's how we know we're alive, right? How do we know we're alive if, if we're not experiencing the anguish of sin? It's how we know we're spiritually alive. That's what I tell people when they ask, People, I mean, they'll come to me and they'll say things like, oh, I just don't even know if I'm a Christian. Why not? I'm so grieved over my sin. I said, you've got it backwards. Like, that's a really good sign if you're grieved over your sin. If you were to come to me and say, I am living in gross immorality and I don't care, that's a way bigger red flag to me and probably to you than somebody like Ed that says, I'm more grieved over the sins of my last 30 years than I've ever been. Because I think that's the Christian life. I think... The more we grow and the more we know, the more we see our sin. We have, we have, it's not that it wasn't there before. It's that now we're seeing it because the Lord's opening our eyes and, and, and drawing us, us in. And so may we all have the kind of humble hearts, teachable hearts that say, I'm more grieved about the sins post-conversion than I am about the sins before my conversion. I think that's a very healthy way to, to look at our sin. It's important. Yeah. Oh, concerning sin. That's a really helpful analogy. I really like that. I appreciate that. Well, that's verse 9. That's the, yeah. that's the humility mm -hmm. that he's mm -hmm. leading us in and teaching us. Mm -hmm. Is that right. the, the law wasn't ever meant to save anybody. It was mm -hmm. meant to be a mirror mm -hmm. to show us, mm -hmm. look, none of, you, none of you guys meet this standard. <laughs> right. Nobody, nobody's meeting this bar. <laughs> right, right. Amen. Mm, great book. Good call. What's his name? Jerry Bridges. The Jerry Bridges. Yeah, that's that's very good. That's where I was thinking too. That's, that's funny. That's either great minds think alike, or I'm sorry for you, Ed. Think like me. That's not good. Uh, verse 11. So unless we want to end this on a cliffhanger, I should probably pick up the pace. Um, verse 11 is the only uh, petition in the middle of this section, and it says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. So I think uh, logically, again, the, you know, anytime we try to structure a psalm or any text of the Bible, like there's always stuff that doesn't quite fit, or you know, it's just it's just a way to try to organize it to see it. But but I think here, you know, David is speaking of these great truths of God, and he can't help but make another petition to the Lord in verse 11 for your name, Lord, right? For your name, pardon my guilt, for it's great. If if you are my God and I am your 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 humble servant. Um, it is your name that is at stake when I have guilt. Please pardon it based on your 
your greatness. Now, verses 12 through 15, he goes back into these uh, promises. Uh, I'll just I'll read them. So, who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. So, um, real quick, so what is the relationship? In the, so when the Bible says, who is the man who fears the Lord, what are we thinking when we hear that phrase, especially in an Old Testament context? Like, does that mean we're, like, we're running scared and we're hiding under rocks? Like, what do we mean when we say fear of the Lord or fear the Lord? It's a, it's a deeper, more reverent fear than, than fear of, of getting harmed, but it's more of a fear of re- respect and reverence. So, good. Um, verse 14, you might have a phrase. So, my version has the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear it. Maybe you have the secret counsel. It's another one of those funky Hebrew words. It's a little tricky to decipher what it means. So, uh, good Bible translators have come down different places on that. Probably not enough time to really unpack that. I think the big picture there is those who, who fear him uh, you know, have, have a special connection to God, right? There, there's, a, there's a nearness, uh, uh, either a friendship or, or a secret or, or a closer type of counsel or, or, or discussion that, that comes between the Lord and those whom, who fear him, right? So it's, it's either friendship or he gives us deeper counsels. What, it just means that, you know, think of it like any sort of friendship, right? The nearer you are, you know, you'll, you'll trust things and you'll, you'll know things about your best friend that other people won't know about your best friend, right? So the idea here is that this nearness to the Lord, those who fear him are not running and hiding, but they're drawing in. They're, they're coming nearer. They're, they're, it's either friendship or the counsel is secret or meaning, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a certain intimacy that, that the, the person who fears the Lord has with with the Lord. And so again, it, it flies in the face of this idea that the fear of the Lord is, is meant to run and hide from God. It's not running and hiding. It's drawing nearer and, and, and having fellowship and friendship with, with him. Again, it's one of those weird, not weird, but it's one of those unique dichotomies in the Christian life. Like we have a, a holy, reverent, unapproachable God who allows us to approach him in friendship and fellowship through the work of Christ. All right. Uh, let's finish out. Would someone be so kind as to read 16 through 18, please? We're going back into the, the petitions section here. Thank you. So in the first three verses, we saw that he was, uh, he was afraid. Uh, he, he was uh, afraid to be put to shame. What, um, what is he concerned about in verse 16 now? Why, why is he asking the Lord to turn to him now in verse 16? He's lonely and afflicted. Very good. And then 
verse 17. My goodness. I mean, when the Bible says things that just like strike you right in your soul, the troubles of my heart are enlarged. Like they just like, they mushroom. It's like a mushroom cloud. Our, like, our troubles are like a mushroom cloud, right? It's like, it's like the bomb goes off and it's just billowing out and it's, it's expanding, right? So he's saying the troubles of my heart are enlarged. I'm lonely. I'm afflicted. And he said, bring me out of my distress. Consider my afflictions. Forgive my sins, right? Again, he can't, can't ever un, untie himself from, from this feeling of knowing that the Lord is the one who, who forgives. Um, verses 19 through 21 would say, consider how many are my foes and what violent hatred they have with, with what violent hatred they hate me. Guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. My integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Now, the last thing I want to spend one, I mean, we really could spend the whole time talking about this because there's a little mystery here, but what is the relationship between the fact that that David has talked about sinners and forgiving my sin and remembering not the sins of my youth. And then verse 21. May integrity and upright, may integrity and uprightness preserve me. How can David ask that question? How can he say both equally, I am a sinner, forgive my sins, and also my integrity and my uprightness preserve me? How does he put those two things together? I uh, expand. Tell me a little more. Um, the pastor talks about um, um, perseverance of the saints. Mm-hmm. Um, really, meaning that God preserves our salvation, but we persevere in our faithfulness. Mm-hmm. I think you're on to something. Very good. Here's my question. Can we, as, as followers of Christ, be both humble and confident at the same time? Yeah, Mark. Yeah, humble that we can't do it, but confident that God can. Yes. Right. Correct. I think that's what's going on here. I think... There's a humble confidence in David saying, I know my sins, I know my limitations, but my confidence is that I am trusting, and like he says here, you're my, he's, the Lord is his refuge, and he is, the Lord is the one whom he's waiting for. So he's saying, 
I am confident. I'm confident in the integrity and uprightness that you have bestowed on me because of who you are. You've saved me because of who you are. You've preserved me because of who you are. So I can stand here confidently waiting on you and considering you my refuge and my tower to, to wait in, in this trial, so I can confidently say, I will be preserved because the Lord is the one that's preserving me. David is looking outside of himself and outside of his circumstances, and he's saying, because of all these facts about God, I can be confident that I know what's going to happen. All right, verse 22. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all of his troubles. We don't even... I, I had a lot more that I wanted to think about with that one, but here, here's the question I was going to ask. Does God still care for a group of people like he cared for Israel today? If the answer is yes, what is that group of people? Children of the promise. The church. Yes. Very good. Very good. So not only, not only does David uh, remind the Lord about his certain circumstances, but never, never too far from David's mind is also this idea that not only is, like, his, his faith life was bigger than just him and the Lord, but it was also him and Israel and the Lord, right? So it's always good to remind ourselves while these, the Psalms are so refreshing to us because they, they drive at our individual needs and our individual concerns, and we know that this God will hear our individual concerns and needs. He'll work for good in our lives, but we never want to separate that from the fact that on top of the fact that the Lord cares for you and me individually, he also cares for his bride. Yeah? Um, so the use of the word Israel, was mm -hmm. that always aimed at the land and the people in the land, or was it aimed at the believers? That's a $64 question, isn't it, Mark? Depends who you ask. Uh, you know, I, I would say, okay, so... There's certain questions that, that really would be better asked next week for reasons unbeknownst to. Um, so take what I'm about to say loosely. Okay. So what I would say is um, if we look at like a Romans 4, it says things like Abraham was not justified by his works but by the promise. So, so and, I, and I would say you could go to, to verses in like Jeremiah and other places that talk about the circumcision of the heart and this idea I think that, that there was always a spiritual Israel that existed. I, so what I'm saying is, here's what I am confident in saying. God cared for the people Israel. And I'm also going to be saying that not every Israelite walked with the Lord, and we're not going to see every Israelite of the Old Testament in heaven. So that doesn't ultimately answer your question, meaning, so when we see redeem Israel, is he talking about just the believers of Israel or is he talking about Israel as a nation? Maybe it, it, it's a little harder to say, but I, I'm very confident in saying that not all people that were ethnically Jewish before Christ were guaranteed to be in the kingdom. I think the Bible is pretty clear that it's always been about faith. You can even see that with the, the entire generation in the wilderness, right? They, they lacked, their, their faith was abysmal and, and non-existent. So um, that's as far as I'm, I'm willing to go <laughs> without possibly leading you astray, which I don't want to do. Um, 
and we can obviously, if we had more time, we could talk about it, but I think we should probably probably wrap it up. So. I've been wondering the same thing now with the war that's going on in Israel. Am I praying for believers or for Israel? Yeah. yeah, well, you know, so God has a certain place in his heart for the ethnic ethnic Israel, right? Like Romans 11 would say that. Um, you know, so the, I think that they're, they're, God has a special place for Israel, and part of it is a desire, and, and, and really, ultimately, at the end of time, we will see a great number of them brought back into the fold. So it is good for us to pray and care about those who are ethnically, ethnically Jewish. It's, it's important. Um, but, but praying for their salvation, not praying for some of the kind of wacky stuff, like we need, we need, they need a new temple, they need to be able to sacrifice. I don't think that's the, the takeaway. I think we want our ethnically Jewish cousins of the faith to, to come to, to, to repentance and belief in Jesus Christ. And again, that's as, more, as comfortable as I am talking about world events too. So we're, we're kind of outside of my, my field of, of vision here at this point. So we should probably put a bow on it before I lead you all into some sort of heresy, which I don't want to do. I desperately don't want to do that. Gary, would you close us in prayer this morning? Please. Father, we thank you.